The day started out with a key inflation report, which came in slightly hotter than anticipated. We saw the year-over-year -year rate at 3.7%, which seems like miles away at what the Federal Reserve's target of 2% is. But yet our guest today actually says, look, things are actually looking up. We're going to be fairly optimistic for the fourth quarter, despite the higher inflation rate and the risk of what the Fed may bring next month. Welcome, everyone, to Buy, Hold, Sell. I am your trader, Todd Schoenberger, and I am joined by my friend and co-host, Tobin Smith, out in sunny and hot Scottsdale, Arizona. It's warm. It's warm. It's not hot, okay? Sunny sunny and warm. Sunny. It's it's hotter than uh, probably New York, though. But uh, It's we a dry heat. It's a dry heat. Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Christina, <laughs> Christina, we have a very special guest with us on Buy, Hold, Sell. Christina Hooper. She is the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco, which currently manages well over one and a half trillion dollars for its clients. Christina, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, we, we're going to start with you because we had that key inflation report that came out today. And really, the anticipation was three tenths of one percent, where we'd have a year over year increase of three point six percent, just a little bit hotter than normal, but still raised the alarm for for Wall Street. Traders actually started selling off throughout the day. We saw the 10 year Treasury yield go up, actually hit four point seven percent intraday trading. Where are you on this? Do you think that the Fed is going to tighten one more time? They're going to hike one more time in November? Or do you think this is just a pause for, for the time being? I don't think the Fed is going to hike again, although it's not going to tell us that. It's probably going to continue to employ hawkish rhetoric. Um, but what we've heard thus far mm -hmm. is that the Fed is very much data dependent. And if it is data dependent, what we are seeing when we put together the mosaic of data is a very strong disinflationary narrative. Now, not every data point is going to be perfect. It is not going to sync 100% with our story. But what we saw today uh, was fairly good. It was slightly off, um, but we're still part of um, very much a, a disinflationary period. Um, and it should be because of, of the Fed. Now, I think the reason markets have reacted the way they have is because they've been walking on eggshells since the release of the most recent dot plot back in September. And there was one particular thing in that dot plot that concerned them. And it was the Fed's change uh, for next year uh, from what was implied to be four rate cuts to just two rate cuts between the June and the September dot plots. And that really set markets off and got them very, very concerned. Um, but I will just remind that the Fed's dot plots aren't always incredibly accurate. In fact, yeah. if we were to go back to December of 21 and we look at their expectations for the Fed funds rate at the end of 22, it was a median Fed funds rate of 90 basis points. And of course, we know how that turned out. Yeah. Hey, Christina, I um, I'm always uh, want to find out from somebody like you who's who uh, has a, such stature out there. I, I don't get the fact that, you know, in like in Finance 101, there were leading indicators and there was trailing indicators. And why is it that the Fed completely disregards the actual leading indicators? Because if you took the leading indicators today, we would be at, you know, 2.8% inflation rate based on leading and throw out the real estate stuff. Because, you know, if you look at some of the indexes that aren't the, from the Fed side, but Zillow index, I can tell you, I have a lot of friends who are big apartment owners. And their rents are going down in all the major cities. So leading or lagging, what, what, what do you follow? 
Well, I try to follow all of them, but with a recognition of what is leading and what isn't. And I think the Fed tries its best. In fact, when Janet Yellen was chair of the Fed, she had created for really her purposes a 17 point labor market conditions index. Um, the Fed is always trying to look at data and it even looks at at um qualitative data, mm -hmm. if you, I can call it that, in terms of the Federal Reserve Beige Book and the kind of anecdotal information that's provided in there. They really are trying to look at the big picture. Unfortunately, I think there is too much uh, emphasis on, on that, which is lagging, like employment. Um, but even if we look at employment, that picture is looking good. It's not about non-farm payrolls and job creation. It's about average hourly earnings. And that is sinking very much with the disinflation narrative. Yeah, I, you're so right in that, tie. The other point I wanted to ask was, not only do sort of the leading indicators, but I, I love you use the term narrative because that's what I learned at Payne Weber back in the day, which was that you could, all you want to do it. But when a narrative takes hold, it's very hard to change it. And right now, you know, you, I think we, I don't know, we have 50% of the people on the narrative of, oh, yes, there's going to be a recession. Let me show you all these data points that say why the recession is a, a certain deal. And there's other people like me who says, well, I actually do math. And if you actually add up the math, um, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, uh, it's almost impossible. It's like we have this, uh, you know, gravitational pull that as soon as we get down to a certain point, the 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 uh, afterburners kick in because of the structure of the United States, and it drives me nuts uh, that that someone can just say, "Well, here's 50 data points and say recession." What's your case against a a real recession? Well, uh, it's largely focused on how tight the labor market is mm -hmm. and how solid the consumer is. And uh, let me first point to the labor market. We have uh, unemployment that's well below 4%. It is very, very hard to see a recession um, in a consumer-driven... As in never, but you know. Yes. You're, you're it, too it, I, I never say never, but in a consumer-driven economy like the U.S., uh, where the, the consumer is, is two-thirds of the economy, um, to see unemployment at 3.7%, it is very, very hard to envision a recession. Um, even if unemployment were to go up uh, to 4.7%, I think it would be hard to see any kind of very significant broad-based recession. Hmm. Um, number two um, is the, uh, the health of households. Um, not only ha do some still have some level of excess savings, and there's a big debate on how we calculate excess savings, but some, some still have some. Their balance sheets are in order. And I think the, the key thing I would point to is the fact that unlike the global financial crisis, when we look at homes with mortgages, what we see is that about 92% of yeah. them have long-term fixed rate mortgages. And the average mortgage rate is well below 4%. And that places the U.S. consumer in a very different position than consumers in other Western developed ec economies that do not have the privilege and luxury of having yeah. a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. Yeah, right. I look at Canada, you know, they, they've never had long-term uh, mortgages. You go to Vancouver today, I was, just, I was up in uh, Quebec a little while ago. You know, there's a world of hurt there. Uh, they, you know... Uh, Americans don't understand that most countries, you have a variable interest rate and they reset every year and they, they had just reset on October 1st in Quebec and our, our hosts were paying 
11.5% on a mortgage rate, which reminded me of going back to like the first house I bought during the great, you know, 16% inflation rates in 82, where I was paying 15%. When you tell somebody today that I was paying 15% mortgage, they will say, Toby, you're on some drug, but <laughs> go to Quebec, go to Berlin, go to, you know, most, every part of the world, except for yeah. the third year, you know, world that we live in. So I, you're dead on. Todd, let's have her on again, okay? She's up there right <laughs> That Definitely. Well, Christina, do you think the Fed reaches this 2% target for inflation? I think it takes time to get there, um, but I think it does. There are going to be parts of the inflation picture that don't cooperate as much as other parts. Um, there are going to be components that are a bit stickier, but I think the Fed does get to around 2%, maybe 2.3% um, within the next 18 months. Okay. Right, here's the argument, talk quickly. Go ahead. Um, the world is different. We're deglobalizing. All the de disinflation that we had for you know, 18, 20 years was basically offshoring, lower cost for all goods, and then services, blah, blah, blah. Why shouldn't we, in a completely different world, with the 115 economists they have down there at the Fed building, why wouldn't we expect a higher inflation rate given the deglobalization uh, of the world economy? Well, it's all about whether or not we have a countervailing force. So okay. certainly we would have elevated inflation in a more deglobalized world. Uh, although I would argue I don't think it's going to be fully deglobalized. Um, but what's really key to look at is that countervailing force, which in my opinion is technological innovation. Just think about artificial intelligence and what we've seen thus far in studies in terms of anticipating the level of efficiency that it can create for call centers. Um, yeah. Imagine a, a world in which you're actually onshoring jobs um, and making um, productivity so much higher um, that that you can live without the level of globalization you had um, in advance of 2019. And, and clearly, the productivity rate was much lower in the same time we're talking about over the, you know, in the last from 2005, let's say. So yeah, it, it is an excellent point. Countervailing is is the word. I'll tell you, I wrote a research report today for a client of mine and I was thinking about my old research assistant who I would have said, hey, uh, Sandy, get in here and you got to do this, this, and this, and this, and, you know, get back to me in two weeks. And on Bing.com and then on, uh, you know, their other one, the, uh, the other one they're doing, the co-pilot, I finished it in 90 minutes. And it was, had every, every detail point, every, uh, you know, uh, link to the source. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, for at least yeah. for white collar jobs and for call center jobs and for, you know, routing. We have a client who has a software uh, development that lowered logistic costs, labor costs, which is their primary cost, 30 percent by, you know, following your iPhone around and having it know where everything was. And um, and CBS just, uh, you know, fit uh, it into 55 different distribution centers because they can't afford to have a higher 30% higher labor cost than their competitors, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm with you. Okay, and Christina, before we go to the break, I wanna go back to the, the Fed and the two to 2.3% target you had mentioned. The, if that is the case, then we should expect the Fed to continue to hike rates into 2024. Is, is that your belief? It isn't because the Fed does know and recognizes that there are lagged effects from monetary policy. Yes. 
both in terms of the impact on growth and the impact on inflation. So if it's moving in the right direction and they're comfortable with that, which I believe most are, and in fact, what we heard from Mary Daly last week is that, hey, the 10-year yield is doing a lot of the work for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in that environment, the Fed does not have to hike anymore. And I suspect it will start cutting sooner than we thought and sooner than they predicted in their most recent dot plot. Yeah, and let's not forget we have a presidential election cycle. And I lived in D.C. for 25 years. And rule number one around that little big building down there was you don't hike rates going into a presidential. Matter of fact, you cut them. Otherwise, you know, there's some other Harvard or, you know, Princeton place for you to go work, but you're not going to be working here. Well, then then with that logic, then, Christina, then you're not anticipating cuts next year, though, are you? To the Fed funds rate? Yes. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. Well, I like that. How much? How much? Come on, don't hold out. Well, you know, it it really will depend upon the data. But I suspect that, you know, the Fed has implied 50 basis points in rate cuts next year. I suspect it will be more than that. And we have a hell of a stock market next year, don't we? We could very well. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, that's a great way to close out this block. That's for sure. I, I love the optimistic tone. So, so with us, so, so with us today, we have Christina Hoover. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. And when we come back after the break, we're going to ask Christina about the upcoming earnings season, maybe some sectors to focus on, maybe some others to stay away. We also want to ask what she's telling Invesco clients. So keep it right here. We'll be right back after the break. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. 
Hey, this is Jeff Hurst, Editor-in-Chief of the Stock Traders Almanac. You got to listen to Todd and Toby on Buy, Hold, Sell. Welcome back to Buy, Hold, Sell. We saw the stock market sell off today. Right after we saw the inflation report, which actually gave us a year-over-year reading of 3.7%, just slightly higher than what Wall Street was anticipating, but uh, probably nothing that's going to be earth-shattering, at least for the um, for the foreseeable future. But with us today, we have Christina Cooper. She's the Chief, Chief, Chief Global Market <laughs> Strategist for Invesco. And Christina... Take a we, breath, Todd. Take a breath. Come on. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. We, we ad-libbed this whole thing. So, But Christina, when we left it at, at the last break... We were uh, we were talking about really the potential of um, whether we're going to see rate cuts, which I was surprised to, to hear your reaction to that. And you are fairly optimistic going forward with the earnings season kicking off tomorrow morning. We uh, we have the three big uh, financial companies coming out. I, and I know you're you're with Invesco. We're, we're, I, we've had a lot of strategists on buy, hold, sell recently who are not very optimistic about the financials. But what's your take? Do you think it's going to be a great earnings season? Do you, are you seeing this 10% earnings growth rate that some people are talking about? Or you think we might be a little bit uh, too optimistic on that side? Here you go, Todd. Well, I'm a little cautious on earnings season. And I, I think that's a good way to be, right? I, I'd rather hope for the best and plan for the worst. Um, what has been surprising is that earnings momentum has improved. And, uh, you know, the revisions have really been centered in a few sectors like energy, um, but also tech and communication services for different reasons. Energy, yeah. it's been all about the increase in crude oil prices. And for tech and communication services, it's been about um, the the cuts that they've made um, that have improved profit margins and, and other sectors not looking as good. So I think this is very much going to be a mixed bag this earnings season. I think we'll be pleasantly surprised with uh, many of the companies in some sectors, but not all. Uh, and uh, and there will be some disappointment, marginally perhaps better than expected when we look at the big picture. Well, I would, Todd, you know, I'm I'm now using just metaphors. I don't speak actually in sentences anymore. And uh, big tech has been a life raft. It's been a life raft. And as an old money manager, um, the last thing you want to do is jump off your life mask. Excuse me, say it again, life raft. I got, there's one constant. Yeah, tongue tied today. Yeah, I got a tongue tied. I get excited when I think about the life raft. Um, <laughs> and, and so therefore, when we go into the end of October, where a lot of mutual funds, that's the year end, and, and yeah. you've made profits and all this stuff, you're going to sell your crappy stuff. That's a technical term, Christina. And then you're going to uh, take some, a little bit of profits on your stuff that's won so you even out your book, right? Now you get into November 1st, November 2nd, whatever the first Monday is, and you buy it the hell back because th- you don't get rid of your life raft. And there's very good reasons why Megatech, Magnificent 7, 8, 12, 15, whatever you want to talk about, is the life raft. So I don't see, uh, you, you would be in a bite your nose to spite your face, to take whatever year you've had and then throw it away because, you know, it's overvalued. Really? You got two months. You want to make money or you want to lose your job? Right, right. That's that's what they used to tell me. Right. Well, with that, Christina, the first half of the year, we really saw 
a considerable amount of uh, growth in the markets. I mean, and, and Toby's right. I mean, it was really the handful, the, the Magnificent Seven or whatever you want to call it on the tech side. But it was really just two letters, AI, that, that really was the octane for, for that bull market. But now, you know, August and September seemed to really slow down. It really was helping the Fed with their argument uh, because we're lowering the, the wealth effect. But going forward, I mean, is AI going to start coming back into this? Because everybody's looking at these tech earnings thinking that's going to save the day as it has all year. I mean, what's your feeling on tech? I mean, do you think that's a sector that are you telling your Invesco clients? Yeah, OK, this should be the area that you should really be concentrating on. Well, we really preach uh, the the portfolio of diversification. Yeah. Right. But but it, to specifically answer your question on technology, I mean, there have been different headwinds and tailwinds this year. AI was very much a psychological phenomenon an excitement about the possibilities as opposed to anything that really showed up in earnings. Right. But it was a powerful tailwind. And in fact, it helped overcome some of the headwinds created yeah. by rising yields. Um, now we're moving into what I think is more tangible, and that's actual improvement in earnings uh, because there have been significant cuts made by technology companies and communication services companies, some of which used to be in the tech sector and just got relabeled, right? And and to me, that's, that's uh, perhaps a more real driver um, although the drivers do the same thing they they can drive up uh, stock prices and so I think that that's what we're likely to see uh, as we head into the end of this year is that earnings improvement uh, drives excitement around technology and helps compensate for headwinds created by higher yields yeah and Todd I would I would add that to, to support her point because she's now my favorite guest ever that um, if you, you take the average what people in America do not understand is in the greater Silicon Valley, whether that's Austin or Seattle or the Silicon Valley, those 385,000 jobs that they cut, the average, the average salary benefits all in was $285,000 a year. Now, the average salary for any white collar work in the United States is significantly less than that. OK, so they have a five or six time multiplier effect on their earnings and on overall earnings, and yet they only cut 350,000 jobs. So that's that's the math that just uh, is, is you can't refute. It's just that nobody really understands it unless your kid works for Facebook and, and comes home and says, hey, uh, tell, listen, I uh, uh, do you want to borrow some money? Because I just got another $300,000 raise and I got a bonus and I, I sold my Facebook shares and I've got like five and a half million bucks in my uh, account and I'm 29 years old. Well, yes, and I can help. I can help you. You know, yeah. um, so the dichotomy is not appreciated, in my opinion. Um, and those jobs that we lost uh, on a relative basis were, should have been lost. You know, Christina, you under, I mean, when you hired five hundred thousand people at two uh, two hundred fifty grand a year, well, they could do it. But then one day, you know, Zuckerberg woke up and said, "Hmm, I think we need the age of austerity this year," mm -hmm. uh, which was a nice way of saying. OMG, are we overstaffed? And you know, and we could, we they raised our their their profit margin eleven hundred basis points. Yeah, and, and, and let's be realistic. Yeah. A lot of these companies were hoarding employees yes. that really weren't um, providing um, any level of of real productive functioning for yeah. for the company. So so the the risk reward on this is pretty pretty compelling. Yeah, and I don't think this story has been told well enough, uh, Todd. I really don't. Uh, 
Yeah. And because it's just when you look at the EPS, their revenue top line only went up two and a half percent. Their bottom lines are going up 13. That's called uh, leverage, earnings leverage power, EPS power. And yeah. <laughs> and since they represent what's the number now, 48 percent of the entire value of the S&P, they're mm-hmm. going to have an outsized, you know, uh, value versus, you know, the GLP-1 people who are getting crashed. I couldn't believe the hospitals got hit yesterday. The kidney frenziest guys got hit yesterday because they came out a report out that uh, that the GLP-1, uh, uh, you know, weight loss drugs are helping kidneys. We have an index now of GLP-1 victims. It's now 125 stocks, Christina, that have, are, are directly being affected by the new narrative, which is another money management thing I learned a long time ago. When that narrative starts that you're going to be hurt, whether it's right or not, I shoot first. We'll figure it out later. Christina, has Invesco with their managed money accounts, have they changed their their portfolio allocation at all this year? Uh, Maybe going more into uh, heavy or overweight into bonds? Well, we actually have very, very short-term tactical asset allocation portfolios. So you could see shifts on a monthly basis in portfolios like that. Um, In general, though, a lot of it has to do with macro drivers. And so you could toggle back and forth between overweights and underweights. What I would say, though, is that in general, what we're seeing, and it's it's really a, a, you know, it's it's a good thing to see for someone my age who has lived through years of, of many years of very scarce yields is that we're seeing an abundance of yields in so many different sub-asset classes within the fixed income space. It's really exciting. Have so- you ever remember utilities getting just bonkered as they are right now? I remember the widows and orphans back in the 80s. You know, we put them in waste management and then we put them in the utility con ed and Florida power FPL which is now next era energy down 64% in the last nine months. I mean, are there sectors that you guys are, you know, totally avoiding? Well, no, we haven't talked about specifically totally avoiding anything. And again, Mm -hmm. what we believe in is diversification and also for, for, most portfolios uh, having a long-term orientation. You know, uh, certainly there can be components of a portfolio that are very tactically asset allocated um, if one does that professionally, right? But yeah. but um, for, for most of the portfolio, it makes sense to have a long-term allocation um, and to be well-diversified both across and within the three major asset classes because it's not just about stocks and bonds. It's also about alternatives. Yeah. The, um, on the 10-year treasury, what are you and your team seeing the yield topping off that. So our expectation is that we think that it doesn't have much more room to run um, and that uh, we would anticipate that as soon as we see clarity on the end of the rate hike cycle, and that could take a little time because the Fed really is, um, I think, uh, speaking out of both sides of its mouth and really trying to remain um, uh, hawkish in a lot of its rhetoric. But once we have clarity that the rate hike cycle is over, I suspect that will be the end of, um, uh, or that will be the peak of the 10-year yield. And that How will we know we have clarity? How will we know we have clarity when they're one side's job boning, the other one's, you know, uh, I've never seen the Fed more a split between the when you the, see Chairman Powell walking into a room and a meeting with a briefcase, that's the signal. He's going to go back oh, to really? the briefs mandates. 
<laughs> well, thank you well, for that professional opinion, Todd. Let's actually get a professional opinion. <laughs> That's why our ratings are so high. Exactly. Well, <laughs> as soon as we see, it could very well be something as simple as uh, reading the FOMC minutes and seeing them talk about when they're going to start cutting rates. That's probably going to be a very clear sign that rate hikes are over. Will you, we'll will you text me before you know that for a fact? Because <laughs> when the market's up a thousand points that day, I want to thank you, uh, Christina. I want to give you serious props. <laughs> Send her some well, flowers. We'll, we'll see. I mean, it could be in his announcement, right, that we're looking yeah. ahead to rate cut. I mean, who knows how it's going to play out? I just think it's oh. going to be pretty soon. Okay. Well, one final question for you. Uh, the, the war in Israel, uh, clearly unrest. Uh, we have no idea where this is going to, how it's going to end and when. Um, are you, is Invesco just fielding calls nonstop from clients that are worried, wondering what should I do? Should I just go completely into treasuries or what are you advising everyone? Uh, so, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it's all about maintaining that long-term perspective. Um, we're going to have lots of different geopolitical risk events. Um, think about the Russia-Ukraine war, for example. Um, and certainly investors even get jitters about elections. Um, but the reality is that typically um, these kinds of geopolitical events don't have any kind of significant long-term impact on portfolios. In fact, I would argue that sometimes the biggest mistakes investors make is to get scared because of something. Um, we saw many get scared, for example, during the GFC, um, with good reason, but getting yeah. out, getting out of um, the market and then missing out on a recovery and not knowing when to get back in. Sometimes that can be the biggest mistake that's made. And, and so, so again, it's, it's trying to inform looking at history and looking at what past uh, geopolitical events have done um, in the grand scheme of things um, and, uh, and encouraging a long-term orientation. I will tell you this, Todd, uh, we picked up a bunch of 10-year bonds sort of pretty doggone near 5%. And back in the old days, when I was selling bonds that were 16%, I told people that, do you understand that when they start cutting rates, your bonds are going to go up more than stocks? And they said, oh, that'll never happen. And sure as heck, those 10-year bonds, I remember selling a Louisiana pension plan, they, they generated a 30% IRR for 21 years holding those bonds. It beat their stock people, you know, senseless. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah. no one in the last 12 years has ever wanted to buy a bond because, I mean, because they were in a bull market for a long right. time, for, for 20 years, right? But there is an opportunity, Todd, to just lock in and sleep well at night with a five, you know, a 10 year yeah. bond, knowing that you're going to earn more than stocks probably in this new you know, uh, paradigm that we're in. But people would never think of it. So I appreciate your point. You're absolutely. Uh, Toby, I, I think back to being in business school in the late 1990s and one of my professors bragging about all the bonds he picked up in the early 1980s right. when we were in middle school and couldn't pick up any bonds. And uh, and I think about him a lot. For yourself, I'm, I'm, okay. Uh, <laughs> I've been flipping bonds at that time. <laughs> it, it's uh, it, this isn't a, a you know relatively speaking this is a very attractive time yeah. for fixed income. Okay, just people. I'm just I don't know if Todd mentions it. People for the last twenty years have never thought about bonds ever. It was it, you know because they kept going up in value. Pension right. people kept going up in value. I'm the smartest person on the world. Then they crashed, and the average pension plan 
uh, you know, bond portfolios down 48%, which is worse than the stocks, by the way. Yeah. And so well, history repeats itself. Maybe it rhymes, but right now it's going to repeat itself. I'm not there you it. go. Well, I, I, I like it. I, I love that that uh, that tone as well, Christina. Just take the long view and um, and you'll be, uh, you know, looks like things will be okay. At least that's what history has told us before. So that's wonderful. Well, listen, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Christina Hooper, thank you so much. She is the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. And we can't thank you enough for joining us today. And uh, we hope to have you back very soon. God, she gets the BGE Award. Best guest ever. I'm telling best, you right now. Best guest ever. Yes, thank you. Me. Tell me where to send the bribe check. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's VIP. So listen, Wait a minute. I'm not, a, I'm not a senator from New Jersey, okay? I can't be <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you again. So on behalf of Christina Hoover and Tobin Smith, I am Todd Schoenberger. Thank you once again to everyone for joining us on Buy, Hold, Sell. We'll catch you next time. Take care. Buy, hold, sell, brought to you by Crosscheck Management. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American Maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel.